0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 7th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Democracy in Chains by Duke University's Nancy McLean is a book that points to the premises of the public choice school as morally deficient. And at the center of a conspiracy to destroy democracy, McLean puts public choice founder, Nobel laureate, and Cato Institute distinguished senior fellow, James Buchanan. Public choice scholar Michael Munger, also of Duke University, discusses the book. About 10 years ago, you wrote a piece in which you suggested, and not happily, that at some point essential truth, and you'll unpack that for us, would replace facts even in academia. What do you mean by that?
1: It was a piece that I published in Public Choice came out in uh, January 2008, so almost 10 years ago. And the main analysis was the events surrounding Dan Rather and CBS News exposing the letters that showed that George W. Bush had failed to make his – what he was required to show up when he was required for uh, Army – forgive me, his Air Force obligations in Alabama. And – it turned out, as you may recall, that the letter apparently was forged because it was in proportional font, which didn't exist because it would have been an IBM Selectric typewriter. And it had footnotes that were the wrong shape and size. And when Dan Rather and CBS News was confronted with this, they all the, – their response was, yes, but we would defend the essential truth of the story. That is the the essential truth, meaning we all know that George W. Bush was a shirker. Uh, didn't show up uh, when when he would have been drafted and was just trying to avoid the Vietnam War, and these details about the facts that you're bringing up, who cares about that? And I I said, I'm worried about this. And in fact, Stephen Colbert famously coined a word, truthiness. It was the the word of the day once on his show, and in it he he paraphrased Dan Rather. There's an essential truth that's more important than the actual facts, and. I suppose that that's OK for a Twitter post, but you there's two places you can't have that. One is the media and the other is in academics. And so what I was worried about was will we on the internet be able to correct untruths that are published in the name of truthiness or will people just respond basically you're nitpicking my footnotes? And certainly the speed with which information can move poses an additional challenge. Right. But the, that, that's a challenge and a promise because it might be that people can go out. It used to be called fisking. Uh, fisking was checking the, someone's facts and, and looking deeply to make sure that uh, if they had an internet post. Uh, what it used to be called in academics was academics.
0: Professor uh, Nancy McLean has written a book, Democracy in Chains, and she takes specific aim at uh, James Buchanan. And full disclosure, uh, I got my master's degree at George Mason University, where he spent uh, many years. Uh, And I I suppose you have disclosures to make as well. So basically, give us the, the general gist, as you understand, from the book. Let me hit
1: just the the high points. It's an entire book and there are many of the the facts, the documents that she found are very interesting. She did a lot of work. It's well written. I did a review of it that was put's going to be published by the Independent Review. And I there's a lot of good things that you can say about the book. I think that the enterprise in which she's engaged in, though, is fundamentally misleading. And in my review, I said that it was an exercise in speculative historical fiction. So, you know, someone has the essential facts, and they they may they give dialogue and they they make up meetings, but the basic facts are established. I think she thinks that's what she's doing. There's a sort of breathlessness to the book where she's revealing these facts that when you hear them, you just won't be able to believe it. And I believe that it started, the Professor McLean, who's my colleague in the history department at uh, Duke University, I'm in the political science department, so that's my first full disclosure. This is a colleague of mine that I'm talking about. She found two footnotes. One of them referred to Jim Buchanan in a controversy over desegregation in Virginia in the late 50s and early 60s. And the second was a footnote in a document, basically a, a reference in a document about the Chilean Constitution, which was imposed in 1980. And she said, this, this guy must be like the conservative Zelig, you know, the the movie – Uh, by Woody Allen, Zelig, where this guy keeps showing up at all the great events in history. But then when she began looking at documents in the archives, when she, Nancy McLean, began looking at documents at the Buchanan house, and uh, she points out, and she's absolutely right, that these archives were not well organized, they weren't well taken care of. This was in summer of 2013, which wasn't long after Buchanan had died, in January of 2013. But Nancy Professor McLean made a real effort to go through these archives and she discovered in in her version of it, no, this guy wasn't Zelig. He's a Bond villain. He was at the center of all this. He was actually the linchpin. Now, he wasn't the sole cause, but what happened is that these uh, shadowy organizations said, this is our guy. This is our messiah. This theory, public choice theory, is going to lead us back into a position of dominance. And what public choice theory is going to help us do is suppress democracy in the United States and overturn the
0: Constitution and impose, in effect, a plutocracy, a rule by the very wealthy. Additional disclosures on my part. Um, The Cato Institute, of course, has James Buchanan listed as a distinguished uh, senior fellow, Uh, did that before uh, he passed away. And of course... Uh, Cato's longtime chairman of 23 years, Bill Niskanen, was a not insignificant contributor to the School of Public Choice. For listeners who are interested but aren't specifically familiar, give us the the shortest thumbnail sketch you can of essentially what the project of public choice is. Well, and I would want to
1: contrast this with what – Professor McLean said that it was, and that's one of the things that, when you're reading the book "Democracy in Chains," uh, the description of Public Choice is it, shocking. Who could who could actually believe this? And the answer, and I can tell you for sure, because I'm an expert, no one, no one believes that. What Public Choice actually is rests on three premises. The first is methodological individualism, the claim that we have to start with individuals. We can't analyze groups as if they're a we. And that is when we look at how voting works, you have to look at how individuals vote because groups don't have preferences. Second, behavioral symmetry. People are basically the same. They don't become geniuses or angels when they enter the voting booth. In fact, most of the problems in consumers are even worse in voters. Lack of information, selfishness, and over-regard for free things. The third, and this is Buchanan's special contribution, was politics as exchange. In spite of those problems, we still often need non-market institutions to help us achieve cooperative benefits that we could achieve in no other way. And In fact, the journal Public Choice was originally called papers in non-market decision-making. So these have to be institutions that are not markets but still allow people to cooperate and sort of exchange by all of us contributing maybe taxes, maybe our labor. Somehow we have to come up with an organization that allows us to – cooperate and make the society
0: better. So those three things together are what public choice is. So when you say non-market exchange being the original title of the journal, that seems broader than government.
1: Absolutely. And when you look at Jim, Jim Buchanan won the Nobel Prize in 1986 and in the Nobel Prize announcement, one of the key parts of it was his work in the theory of clubs. And when you look around and you see all of the Voluntary but still private organizations that Alexis de Tocqueville talked about as being the special genius of the American people, you realize that having those voluntary private organizations where people try to achieve some joint aim by cooperating, not by using markets but not by using the state either, what Richard Cornell called the independent sector – That's what Jim Buchanan was talking about. Now, maybe this could also be applied to the state. Buchanan was interested in constitutions, but public choice
0: is about cooperation in groups. So I guess what is her essential argument? You say that she doesn't particularly uh, present uh, public choice in precise language, but she wants to sort of use that as a springboard to describe Jim Buchanan as what?
1: Well, I realize you're trying to be charitable, but let me correct you. It's not that she she gives imprecise language. She's very precise but mistaken. she She sees public choice as having two contributions, two claims, both of which are on their face, evil. The first is that you can't really have a we" when you're analyzing politics, that you have to look at individuals. And in fact, the epigram at the beginning of the book, Uh, is by Pierre Lemieux and he said public choice theory has put the end to the political we and what he meant by that is groups don't have preferences. If you're going to do social choice theory, you have to start with individual votes because the way you aggregate the votes matters. McLean has never – thought about social choice theory or the problem with voting, and to her, that's just on its face an ideological statement, whereas in fact, it's a methodological approach. Now, maybe we should start with we, but that's not what public choice does. Public choice says, let's start with individuals and look at the implications for the way that we aggregate, majority rule, plurality rule, uh, a parliamentary system, all of those will give you different results from the same pattern of voting. Rules matter more than they should. So the first thing she does is misinterpret this idea that there's no, there are, that groups don't have preferences. Second misinterpretation I think is more shocking. She's astonished that there's someone who thinks that majorities should be controlled. And she quotes verbatim and in context several places where Buchanan and others said we need to control majorities. But that's just straightforwardly the premise of most of the Bill of Rights. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, meaning that even if a majority of people want to suppress an unpopular opinion, the Constitution will prevent it. I often in my classes at Duke will ask my poor students how many of them believe in democracy and of course since they just think democracy means good government and they've been catechized in this as a kind of religion, they'll all raise their hands. Then I'll say, how many of you think Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision on abortion, should be overturned? And none of them do. And I ask, what would happen if Roe versus Wade were overturned? And there's a silence. Well, the answer is democracy would break out. There would be 50 different legislatures deciding, whether by majority rule, whether abortion is going to be legal. So – most people believe that democracy, if by, if by democracy you mean majority rule, should be controlled. So, I think she just absolutely gets wrong the basis of a lot of what's really orthodox political science.
0: Now, you wrote a book uh, detailing some of these kinds of, of uh, arguments, sort of extending a lot of the work of the public choice school choosing in groups, which we discussed, you and I discussed at the uh, Cato Institute a couple of years ago. Um, what was that project aimed at? In many ways, it was and I thought of it as an extension
1: of Jim Buchanan's thought into a more technical, formal political science. I wanted to connect Jim Buchanan's view of public choice and politics as exchange with more traditional political science spatial theory and In it, there's a section where I talk about how important Buchanan's work is for understanding democracy. The the book, the Choosing in Groups book, is designed to help you think about the way we represent preferences and the way that different rules give you different outcomes with the same preferences, which is upsetting if you think— just naively and as apparently professor Nick McLean does democracy means the government should do, should do what the people want the people singular there's just one big one and that's not true there are many different majorities that want different things it's a much more complicated problem than that so That's my full disclosure is that Professor McLean is attacking the two things, public choice theory and the work of James Buchanan, on which most of my professional reputation lies. So it's not surprising that I would be defensive about that. And I guess listeners should interpret my defense in light of that.
0: Is she arguing essentially, uh, as you see it, that the methodology of public choice is just uh, wrong or offensive in some way? The actual
1: Premises of public choice are morally evil. This is not a methodological point she's making. It is an ideological and moral point that it's it's wrong to think that we should, we meaning the makers of rules, should limit majorities. And it's wrong to think that there's not some collective Rossovian general will.
0: When I've read uh, Buchanan and Tullock – Uh, On constitutions, it seems like they are trying to uh, figure out in theory what the founders were attempting to figure out in practice in a lot of ways. And if you view majorities as this sort of an end unto itself, that is, majorities of making decisions and somehow these rules uh, of protecting individuals uh, don't matter so much, is she attacking sort of the foundation of the United States in a way? She sees
1: herself as defending the foundation of the United States because she sees the United States as being a democracy and of course it's a constitutional republic. Now, that distinction is pedantic but it cashes out to mean that the majorities don't directly decide things. We elect officials. But more important, the constitution also limits the domain in which majorities are allowed to do anything and the Bill of Rights in particular does that. the kind of midrash that the Supreme Court has provided elaborating the Torah of the uh, constitution. We have all these Supreme Court decisions that limit what what majorities can do. I don't understand why it's not obvious that we do want to limit majorities. The question that we should argue about in academics is where should the lines of that domain be? And that's what I expected this book to be about, was to say these public choice people, they're too worried about private property. They're not worried enough about political rights. That's really not her argument. It's just per se, limits on majorities are evil. And she goes so far as to compare the United States to Chile, which had a constitution imposed under the dictator Auguste Pinochet in 1980. And accuse public choice theorists and Jim Buchanan in particular of wanting to establish a military dictatorship which can impose its own new constitution just as Chile did. So it's shocking. She sees herself as defending the constitution and public choice as being an attack on it. Whereas as you said – particularly Buchanan and to some extent Tullock they see themselves as in the in the calculus of consent at least which was published by the University of Michigan in 1962 they see themselves as doing a sort of formalization of James Madison's theory of constitutions in particular
0: the US constitution you mentioned chile a number of times and and you you haven't really explained exactly why you view that connection as completely wrong
1: let me let me Take a step back and say something. The, the the events happened a little while ago, so the the all too brief summary is that uh, Salvador Allende was elected as a socialist president in Chile in 1970. In 1973, there was a coup where a military junta imposed a new rule. Eventually, Augusto Pinochet, who was a general in the army, took that over. He. Uh, imposed a uh, constitution in sort of a sketchy plebiscite in 1980. That constitution had certain properties that restricted the ability—they're was a, they're trying to make a transition to democracy. The, the constitution prevented uh, a, a truth and reconciliation commission. It made it very difficult for once there was a democracy for any of the people who had committed murders and done the torture, particularly between 73 and 76 from being brought to justice. Now, that from one perspective is a monstrous injustice. There's no question that what happened in Chile between 1973 and 1976 cannot possibly be justified. Whatever you think of the other events, that cannot be justified. Question is: Should those people be brought to justice or not? And it's very tempting to think the answer is yes, but look what happens in countries that are not able to have a constitution that ensures that the people who now control power won't find themselves so threatened that they have to have another coup. So, if Chile had imposed what we think of as a, a republican constitution that, and they had tried to transition back to democracy. There would have been another military coup right away because the colonels were not going to allow themselves to be prosecuted. Barry Weingast, the political scientist at Stanford University, calls this the proportionality theorem. That is, formal institutions cannot be very different from the de facto distribution of power. If the de facto distribution of power is really, really different from the power distribution of the new constitution you're trying to impose. You're going to see a military coup. And we just saw this in Egypt. Egypt tried to have a constitution. Morsi said, all right, I'm the president now. I'm going to make a bunch of changes. And the military said, you know, I don't think you are. And in fact, we're going to arrest you and impose a military dictatorship. So it is a mistake, I think. And let, me, let me go farther. Chile's constitution was terrific. Chile's Constitu- the 1980 Constitution, for all of its laws, was terrific because Chile really did hold a free and fair plebiscite in 1988, which Pinochet lost. And then they had a free and fair election for president in 1989, which Patricio Al- Alwin won, and they made it. They're now a vibrant democracy that has real elections, uh, real protection of political freedoms, expressions of freedom of the press, parties. They made it. Most countries don't. And you need to give, the, for all its flaws, the Constitution of 1980 credit for that. But here's the weird thing. Jim Buchanan had nothing to do with that constitution. So McLean is wrong twice. First, the constitution was great. It wasn't bad. And her allegations, her attempt to connect Buchanan to this constitution, which I wish he had written, are wrong. That, that didn't happen. Buchanan did not
0: participate in the writing
1: of that constitution.
0: There are books like this that come out that are uh, in many ways well-researched that present interesting facts and then take those to a conclusion that um, any other academics would attack and say, yeah, a lot, of your, a lot of your facts are right, some of your facts are wrong, but the, uh, the imputation of motive here is uh, where you have gone wrong. Is that the case here?
1: I I think it is the case here. I'm I'm reluctant to be too catty about it, but what the heck? I mean this this is for profit scholarship. She, M- Professor McLean, wrote this to sell to a trade book company, Viking Press. Oprah Winfrey said that this is one of the 20 most important books of the summer. So there's people sitting in beach chairs, having boat drinks, reading this book. That's the sort of history that it is. It's not the kind of history where you try to say, well, on the one hand, this might have happened. On the other, this might have happened. Professor McLean had a view. She had a story and the story, when you read it, has its own sort of momentum. It's really interesting. The book is a page turner. Many of the facts, many of the documents that she has put together actually exist. The problem is her, her interpolation. She interpolated motives and other events in between the sort of sporadic set of, of things that she actually observed and I think I would really be interested in this book except that I know that the story that she's telling is just wrong. That didn't happen. That That's not the way public choice developed. That's not the motives of the participants in the public choice movement. That's not the way that people think about constitutions. So the no academic press, in my opinion, would have published this. That's the reason why you have to be careful when you publish with a trade press. They're looking for profits. And it's working. But I think that the press ultimately is going to be embarrassed for having published this book. Even a trade press like Viking is going to have to say, you know, I'm, maybe we should have done a little more checking. Trevor
0: Burrus It's my understanding that this book was funded uh, through a National Endowment for the Humanities grant. Is that, is that true? To be fair, what Professor McLean
1: did was submit through the normal channels a uh, grant proposal from the National Endowment for the Humanities and it was peer-reviewed and she got an amount of money, something just short of $51,000 to support her in this research. That's, you know, that's the way academics work. I've gotten money from the National Endowment for the Humanities. I've gotten money from the National Science Foundation and I use that in my research. So it's not true that the book was funded. What was funded was her research but even in the NEH grant, it says, I'm going to publish this with Viking Press. So it, she disdained to conceal her views and aims. She said, this is going to be the result of this is a trade book. Now, the amazing thing about the NEH grant and it's available online is that I, – I, I'm not quoting. I'm paraphrasing. So I, I may get some of these words wrong. But in effect, the history of the conservative movement – And the Republican attempt to suppress the U.S. Constitution is documented by this research into a surprising and little-known body of study called public choice. And in particular, there is one central figure in this shadowy past that should be revealed. And that's James McGill Buchanan. No one realizes how central he was to the – This evil program of suppressing of the U.S. Constitution. Now, people are entitled to their opinion, but that's what she applied to the National Endowment for the Humanities for Money to Get. It's an explicitly political and, dare I say, partisan approach to getting money from the federal government and get U.S. taxpayers' money to finance this research. So I think that's the interesting story here. I think it's very surprising that the NEH would have funded this. And I don't begrudge at all that this money was spent to go through the public choice archives. That's all great. What's surprising is that she didn't say, I want to find out what public choice is about. She said, I know what public choice is about. I want to go through the archives
0: and come up with examples to illustrate how evil it is. To the extent that she has... uh Attempted to, I guess, understand the roots of a the modern conservative movement, um, which I I think is is somewhat distinct from uh, the libertarian uh, movement. She misidentifies at least a few people as libertarians.
1: I, I think there's mis- misdirect misidentification in both directions. Buchanan wasn't really conservative, and in fact, he had some pretty odd views. He was for a confiscatory estate tax, uh, he actually thought that any sort—he was a contractarian. So although he was personally libertarian, he thought that a consensus in a society that wanted to be socialist or even communist was fine. What matters is what people want and he would say he was a subjectivist. The, the values start with us. So it's, it's not a very conservative position. So to identify a libertarian like Buchanan as a conservative is odd and then yes, some actual conservatives are called libertarians that are not <laughs> I am not going to name names, but uh I I think that there are some people who she identifies as libertarians that among us who are libertarians would say I I'm, I'm not so sure he's on our team.
0: Well, I will name a couple of names, Ed Meese and Irving Crystal.
1: Yeah, yeah, not not even not even Bill, not even the son who who I is a friend of mine, uh but Irving is certainly not a, a libertarian. And to be fair, it's not that he tried to be and we rejected him. He didn't
0: want to be. He would be offended if you called him a libertarian. He is a rock-ribbed conservative. And and it's interesting you point out here uh, that uh, Jim Buchanan, his views were uh, subjective. He viewed the views as essentially or I should say values as emergent. Well, but that's the fundamental democratic
1: principle is that each individual is the best choice of his or her own welfare. And the people who believe that in politics for some reason don't believe it about economics. But that subjectivism actually cashes out politically as autonomy. It's up to the individual what sort of life and communities of meaning he or she constructs for herself. So the, the, that subjectivism is a really important part of
0: liberalism, not libertarianism but liberalism. Michael Munger is a professor of political science, economics, and public policy at Duke University. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.